the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, with the second hour of our three-hour tour. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about something, uh, well, a little more dystopian than we were the last hour. Um, Joining me by phone is the UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention and author of a... uh, new book called It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. His name is uh, Alexander Hinton. He joins me by phone. Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Um, Alex, I want to, I actually need to ask you the definitions of a couple of things before we, uh, before we get too deep into our conversation. Um, sure. What is UNESCO? Oh, UNESCO is a branch of the UN uh, that focuses on economic, social, and cultural issues, and education as well. Okay, and uh, I also wanted to mention that you're um, uh, a distinguished professor of anthropology at uh, Rutgers University and the founder and director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights. Um, at Rutgers. Um, The other thing that I wanted to ask is, how do we define genocide? Uh, That's a a great question. There's a quick answer, a medium-length answer, and a really long answer, so I I won't give you the really long one. Um, But it's the, so the UN has a definition uh, that emerged uh, and right after the Holocaust uh, that was proposed by, uh, sort of led by uh, a man named Raphael Lemkin, um, and it, the key ingredient is intent, 
the intent to destroy, and then after a lot of negotiation, at first political groups were supposed to be included, uh, but it came down in the official definition uh, to racial groups, national groups, ethnic groups, um, and religious groups. So those are the protected groups, uh, and there are a lot of groups that were left out of that uh, through political uh, you know, bargaining to get something done. Uh, so that's the one that in international courts of law would be used, um, but most scholars uh, like myself have a broader definition, uh, which is uh, any group that's targeted because of who they are uh, are victims of uh, genocide. So they're, anyway, so that's the mid-length uh, answer. It, does the longer answer include uh, numbers? Oh, the, yeah, it, it does. <clears throat> well, there are a, num- so a number of different issues, and one of them uh, that emerged was how many people uh, does it take to have a genocide? So if you had the bombing of Hiroshima, for example, uh, or you had indigenous groups, uh, for example, people talked about in, in places uh, in the Amazon, uh, let's say there are 30 members of a group, uh, loggers come in and they kill them all, is that a genocide? Uh, so there's a lot of discussion about that. Some people have talked about genocidal massacres as opposed to genocide as a sustained process uh, to sort of uh, get through this, but uh, people people definitely debate this, um, but in the definition uh, it says in whole or in part, uh, which sort of opens the door much more to uh, what some people, when people think of, the, of genocide, you know, the prototype is the Holocaust, Auschwitz. Um, and so when they think of genocide, they think of industrial mass murder. Uh, but in fact, genocide uh, takes place in many other sorts of ways, uh, and people even talk about uh, structural genocide, which parallels the notion of structural violence uh, now. But that's more of the academics. The uh, yeah, UN and, and, and legal and personnel have a, a very strict definition. And and just to to uh, unpack that a little bit more before we start talking about the risks uh, for genocide in the U.S. How how is genocide different than civil wars that we see all around the globe? And one side becomes dramatically victorious. Is that then considered a genocide, or um, what? What what draws the line between those two things? You're asking such great questions. Uh, you need to start attending, uh, you know, genocide studies conferences. I think those are, <laughs> are the <laughs> questions that are right at the forefront uh, of discussions. Um, so one of the key risk factors, among others, uh, for uh, genocide, and I should say uh, it's important not just, uh, especially in relationship to the book, to focus on genocide. That's the extreme end of a spectrum of what are called atrocity crimes, which include war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, uh, and then there's a you know somewhat broader umbrella when people talk about mass violence. Uh, so my book is looking at the you know the sort of spectrum, uh, the sort of extreme point of which. Um, is genocide. Uh, so when different assessment measures have been developed uh, to assess risk, uh, and I was using one of them, actually one that's used by UN office to look at the situation in the U.S., but, the, but the, one of the primary factors, perhaps the key factor, um, is upheaval. And within that category of upheaval, civil war is right up at the top. Uh, and many 
different genocides are linked to civil war. Uh, so they're interconnected. But of course, you can have a civil war that doesn't lead to the intentional destruction of a group or massive crimes against humanity, though you often and usually have mass violence taking place. Now, just over this past Memorial Day weekend, um, people around the country were recognizing the uh, centennial of the uh, Tulsa massacre sure. um, of uh, what was considered Black Wall Street, and hundreds of people were killed. And um, how, since that's sort of fresh in everybody's mind, how does that event um, at least inspire a concern about the threat of, of genocide in the U.S.? Yeah, you know, that's another great question. Um, so the title of the book, as you said, of my book is It Can Happen Here, uh, and it plays in part off a novel by... Uh, Sinclair Lewis was written in the 30s uh, as Hitler was rising to power in Europe, and he looked around and sort of saw what we would now say risk factors. Uh, a number of them were sort of in play, and people would say, oh, this could never happen here. So he, that was the title of his book. My, my book plays upon that. Um, and, but, you know, so it's, it's not that it can happen here. It can happen here, which is what Sinclair Lewis also thought. Uh, but the first part to understanding that uh, is to understand that it has happened here. So uh, I mentioned before uh, risk assessment and different factors. We, upheavals, one of the key factors. Another is a history of uh, past genocide uh, and atrocity crimes. So one of the, if we sort of go back and with this idea of it has happened here, you know, you go back to the founding of the country uh, with the killing of indigenous peoples, but also the creation of the institution of enslavement. Uh, which certainly involved a host of crimes against humanity, uh, and people have, uh, you know, some people have even argued that uh, genocide is appropriate to characterize that situation. But regardless, whichever way uh, you look at it, uh, there's no doubt that atrocity crimes took place, and within that long history of atrocity crimes uh, that were perpetrated uh, against blacks in this country, uh, but again, uh, a number of different black and brown people uh, at different points of time sort of weaving into the history of immigration uh, and the demonization of those immigrants, including, uh, you know, sort of has come more recently back into focus attacks on uh, Asian Americans. But when, when so in other words, when I look at uh, the Tulsa massacre, I see it in terms of this very long history, and it's one more example, a dramatic one. Uh, and I think the other point that's important to bear in mind is that, you know, three or four years ago, most people, many people in the United States had never heard of what was then being called uh, the Tulsa race riots. There's been a shift in terminology that's taken place over the last couple of years. Uh, people didn't really know about it. Locally, people did, and certainly uh, black communities did, uh, and different scholars talked about it, but it wasn't well known. So in terms of, you know, what's important beyond just recognizing uh, this event that took place is to see how it fits into this longer history of atrocity crimes. Uh, and again, if one of the predictors um, of atrocity crimes, including genocide, 
uh, or you know history of past atrocities, it's important uh, and necessary to look back and deal with the past in order to move forward and to mitigate the risk. So that's something that, besides a simple acknowledgement uh, and some sort of potential reparation, uh, there's a reason to do it just in terms of moving forward, uh, making sure that these sorts of things don't happen again in the U.S. And yet they did. And we, yet they did, and they do, and they probably will again. We, I mean, we certainly saw um, atrocities during uh, racial demonstrations during the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. So... And what you and what you talk about in the book, um, really, when you talk about white power and the rising threat of genocide in the U.S., you're really putting several of these things that have been looked at historically as separate events into a context or a pattern of behavior. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, do you want me to? Yeah. Talk about that. Or? Yeah, please. Yeah. So, in terms of uh, then, as you, exactly as you're pointing out, um, you know, if we think of an event like Tulsa or Charlottesville, which is one of the key junctures, uh, starting points of uh, my book, uh, people often say, "Well, these are uh, you know, exceptional events." Um, you saw after the Capitol insurrection, uh, people are saying, this is not us, this is not America. Um, this is a recurrent thing that happens uh, after what sort of events that don't seem to fit with the popular perception of what the, the U.S. is. Um, and first of all, I want to say, you know, the U.S. is a great country. Uh, you know, I love it, but like with all things, we need to understand the bad that comes along with that good. Uh, and understanding the history of uh, systemic white supremacy and systemic white power and how we got to the current moment uh, is absolutely critical in terms of moving forward. Um, so we have a lot of these debates uh, that have emerged in terms of, for example, the 1619 Project, the New York Times uh, special issue in the magazine that came out uh, that has generated so much controversy and during the Trump administration. Uh, there was a move to have, there was a 1776 project. There was a 1776 focused uh, human rights uh, commission that was convened. Uh, the commission actually on human rights acknowledged a lot of what happened in the past, but that did not take place with the uh, 1776 historical commission. The argument was some bad stuff happened, but we need to focus on the good, on the heroes. Um, it's like with all things, you know, if to use a different metaphor. Uh, you know, people go into therapy to sort of reconcile with things that have happened that have led them into their current moment and to deal with those issues. You can think of the U.S. in the same way. Lots of good stuff going forward, but we have to deal with this past, recognize what it is, and that's going to enable us uh, to move forward in a much better way. Alex, I have to take a, uh, a pause here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Absolutely. That'd be great. 
Great, thank you. Uh, my guest is Alexander Hinton, the uh, UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention and author of a new book called It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. We'll be back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. 
Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation this hour with the author of a new book called It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., and it's written by the UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention, Alexander Hinton, who joins me by phone. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, thanks so much. It's great great to be here. Um, Alex, we talked about some definitions in the uh, last segment um, to, to kind of set up our, our conversation, and, and then we got into... Uh, we got about as far as uh, taking events like the uh, Tulsa Massacre and uh, Charlottesville, as you talk about in your book, um, as as events that are part of a, a longer history and a longer trend. And I was a little surprised to find out that you talk about white power, or at least uh, the, the idea of white supremacy, um, as more about us as we were founded uh, by the founding fathers, then we like to think. I, and I, I, when I say that, I'm reminded of then-President Barack Obama talking about, uh, you know, we're a work in progress. And, and very often when people are reminded of some of the things uh, that were sort of built into our founding documents, um, that there was there was a vision even if it was not the reality then and going forward yeah no that's uh, and certainly uh Barack Obama raised those issues uh there was a other side where people said we've sort of moved past races an issue in the US at this point uh even as uh, a number of far right extremist groups uh, the numbers were increasing uh you know, when he was elected at the time. Um, but I think there was sort of a, a reckoning and a grappling uh, with this history that was pushed aside in some ways by uh, by his election. Um, but to, to your, your point, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the history of the country, and again, uh, you know, how I was taught it in a certain way. Uh, my parents were taught it in a certain way. Uh, my children are taught it in a certain way, and that shifts through time. But certainly until very recently, uh, events like the uh, destruction of indigenous peoples that were linked to the founding of the country. So, you know, people came over Jamestown and almost immediately uh, began to have conflict with the local indigenous peoples. Uh, massacres took place. Actually, there was also a massacre uh, of the settlers in Jamestown as well uh, in this conflict. But it began a move uh, that took uh, place through time where beginning over on the East Coast, uh, indigenous peoples began to, they were dying in large numbers because of disease. Um, they were being killed, and they were being forced out of their homes 
over time, and they kept being moved over, and eventually the frontier landed uh, in the Indian territories in Oklahoma. Their numbers had shrunk dramatically. Uh, so this history is t- was talked about when I was growing up to some extent, not that much to some extent. Uh, now it's talked about more. Enslavement is an issue, uh, and the very idea of looking at history in terms of 1619 as, as a starting point, um, I do have my issue with the 1619 uh, project. Uh, I have two issues. Um, one was brought up by my students who say it sort of gives you nothing. Uh, you know, you look at the U.S. and there's nothing sort of optimistic. It's not that hopeful. Um, and I think it was in, the report was intentionally written in that manner to provoke. Uh, the other thing it doesn't really do is it doesn't talk about uh, the indigenous uh, genocide, though I think the, uh, the head of that, that project would certainly acknowledge it. Uh, that was written to make a point. But the problem with 1776 is all it does, it takes the flip side, and it just talks about the glorious founding of the country, starts history at 1776, says a little about what took place before. Um, and so really, the, you know, the 1619 project for all the controversy makes us look back further in the history at this, the beginnings of the country, how it was intertwined with uh, settler colonialism, with genocide, uh, how the prosperity of the U.S. from the very beginning was intertwined with enslavement. Um, until we grapple with that history and acknowledge it, including the ways in which it reverberates into the present, um, you know, it, again, this idea that, that you know, you've got to clean up the house to move forward. You've got to deal with the past in order to find a better way forward. And I think again and again we see that we're kind of stuck in this mode. And going back to the uh, Tulsa massacre, uh, that you mentioned, you know, think about five years ago, very few people knew about or were talking about it, and it took place 100 years ago. That history was erased. Uh, so there's a long process of acknowledgement uh, that needs to take place in the U.S. Uh, at this point. And sort of going back to our, our beginning discussion, uh, one of the risk factors for atrocity crimes is a history of past atrocities. That makes it all the more important uh, to deal with this past uh, and acknowledge it to mitigate the risk that's going to take place uh, in the future. And and we celebrate the the founding fathers for some very lofty goals and and words and and rhetoric. But how do we not think in terms of um, you know pay attention to what we do, not what we say? Yeah, so, you know, this is another uh, hugely contentious issue. Um, you know, I sort of begin with the premise that all human beings are flawed, uh, and they do things that aren't so good, they do things that are good, and they do their best. Uh, most people are trying to do the best that they can. Um, and certainly looking at the Founding Fathers, they were, again, it varies depending on the person, but they were deeply enmeshed in the context of enslavement. They had different sorts of attitudes towards it. Uh, but they also were moving forward with a project that, uh, you know, ended up creating uh, perhaps the greatest democracy in history. Um, but again, as opposed to just glorifying it, we need to understand and reckon with uh, different events that took place that were the shadow side of that. Um, and it's unfortunate that we're at this polarized moment where any discussion of the past seems to 
uh, with a large number of people, uh, you know, set them off uh, and sort of flip into tropes like criticizing uh, what's, again, something no one had talked about or even heard about before, critical race theory, uh, in a very stereotyped and caricatured way. Um, so, you know, the starting point, you talk about what leads to atrocity crimes. Well, one of the ways to prevent it is to have dialogue and for people to listen. Uh, and what we really need is to get to a place where we can have sustained dialogues. When and, you, you know, I think, when I you think we're moving towards that. When you Sorry. mentioned uh, the U.S. is the greatest democracy in, in history, um, I, I, I couldn't help hearing Winston Churchill saying that democracy was the uh, worst form of government, <laughs> except for all the others. Yeah, um, for all the others, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is kind of an interesting way to look at it, but the problem is when, when we do acknowledge events like the... Uh, Tulsa City Massacre and um, uh, and and events like uh, well, 1619 Charleston 1619 when we when we acknowledge those things but I was thinking more in terms of more contemporary things the uh, uh, the shooting of, of uh, young black men by police officers uh, very often unarmed young black men um, it it starts a discussion, but are we talking about the right things? Because a lot of times, and I've seen some of these town halls on public television and other cable channels and so on, where we're going to have the discussion that, that we need to have to deal with systemic racism. And and it ends up being um, a, a, a long gripe session, a long complaint session with very few suggestions for how to move forward differently. Um, when you bring up the idea that we need to talk about these things, what is it we need to talk about? And, and who needs to be listening? Yeah, well, I mean, everyone needs to ideally be listening, right, to have dialogue. And as you're suggesting, there are a number of different contexts, large and small, where these issues bubble up. They're bubbling up in school districts even. Um, you know, so how do you have dialogue? There are a number of different sort of pieces to uh, the question you just posed. How do you have dialogue? Um, you know, so the book actually concludes with Toni Morrison's uh, Nobel uh, Prize address where she talks about a parable um, a story of an old blind woman, uh, and she's approached and who lives in a village, uh, and that's a metaphor for the writer. The bird is a metaphor for her language. They approach her and say, uh, old lady, tell us whether this bird in our hands is alive or dead. Um, and then the address goes on and talks about the uh, power of language to dominate, but then the story is written uh, in a way that it actually begins once upon a time, a second time, once upon a time, a third time. And then at the end of it, it actually rewrites the entire story to have a different dialogue uh, with the youths. And the reason I mention that is because, you know, moving away from the notion uh, of the use of language uh, and talk that's one-sided, uh, dominating, doesn't allow for multivocality, she's advocating for dialogue being open to other possibilities and also the ability just to listen, which is actually the last telling uh, in her address, which is where she actually listens and thinks about what the youth might be saying as opposed to what she assumes they're saying. 
you know, I recommend that to you. Know, you can go to the Nobel uh, Nobel Prize website and you can uh, listen to it. It's also out in the book. It's it's fantastic. But that act of listening, that act of beginning with the assumption that I might not know it all, that those people, even who I think I have radical differences with, might have things that I need to hear, and there may be points of agreement. You know, that's a starting point for dialogue. Um, and it's hard to do, especially when things uh, are incredibly polarized, as they are right now. Um, but again, in different contexts, I think there are places where people are beginning to have these dialogues, and I think Tulsa is one of them. Um, you know, so there's a lot of critique of, uh, of the commission there. Um, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of emotion. But there also has been a fair amount of listening that's taken place. And actually, if you look at the U.S. in general, and if you went back five years ago and said, uh, so there's a, a thing called transitional justice, which takes place in many places in the world with truth commissions, uh, international tribunals, and different forms of redress. Uh, one of those is reparations. Five years ago, nobody was really talking uh, about the U.S. as a place that needs some sort of mechanism of transitional justice. And by the way, Reconstruction was an example of transitional justice in the U.S. Now, five years later, um, and there was a, uh, I think it was in the New Yorker, an essay called The Case for Reparations uh, that made a splash about five or six years ago. Now we actually have reparations in different places. Uh, Evanston uh, has one. There's an announcement there's a seminary that's beginning a reparations program. And communities throughout the country, there's actually starting to be movement, dialogue like this. So we have the broader political discourse that takes place. Um, and then we have on the ground things that are sort of bubbling up uh, and their conversations that are taking place. And this history is being actually acknowledged uh, in a way it hasn't been before. It's not a. It's not going to be a short. I actually short-term process. I actually recently wrote a uh, op-ed in the journal Sapiens, uh, which makes the case for a truth, uh, the need for the U.S. to have a truth commission uh, on uh, white supremacy, which dates back to the founding of the country. But it's not just a national commission. I argue that funds would need to be allocated. Uh, be available for local communities to take this sort of grassroots uh, action that is now being taken increasingly uh, to begin to grapple with the past. Um, just to sort of go back to the first part of your question, uh, you know, when we sort of take the title of, of my book, which is provocative, it can happen here, uh, you know, there are often two conceptual blockages that exist that stop that sort of impede our acknowledgement uh, of the fact that it can happen here, and it may happen here, and it has happened here. Um, the first uh, is the myth of uh, American exceptionalism, which uh, people have been talking about uh, recently much more than uh, they have in the past, that somehow the U.S. has a special status uh, that makes it different from other places. Um, and this, this idea gets us away from acknowledging what's taken place uh, even as, again, as I said before, there are a lot of great things about this country uh, and the U.S., especially um, after the Carter administration has been a big advocate for human rights uh, in the world and the Biden administration sort of taking that up again. The second conceptual blockage, um, I have a chapter called The Hater, uh, and this is a little bit counterintuitive, but whenever I hear someone refer to a white supremacist 
in the singular, you know, I kind of shake, shake my head because what it's doing is it's individualizing our perspective, right? It's making us think, oh, the people who do this are a few bad apples. It's the sort of crazy racist haters, bigots. And when we have a perspective that looks solely at individual agency, we lose sight of precisely what you raised a while ago, which is the larger structural and historical processes that lead to moments where people do racist, hateful things. Um, so but, that but, it, but it is important, uh, well, at least it seems important to me, that we identify who the haters are, um, because there are people who, whether they intend to or not, and, and I'm talking about primarily uh, Western Europeans in, in the United States or as colloquially called white people, um, that, that don't storm the Capitol, that don't massacre black neighborhoods, that don't shoot unarmed black people in the back, and they're not turned off by the phrase white power or white supremacy because although they may not be violent or hateful, they really want to go back to a life that, that resembled the TV show Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a, uh, a great point, and, you know, these are things I discuss in the book. And, and we have to bring them into the conversation Absolutely. So to, to do that, again, if we go back to this sort of second conceptual blockage, uh, what I'm referring to as the hater, the problem is for precisely the people you're talking about, if we say, oh, it's those crazy white supremacists at Charlottesville who are to blame, what does that do? That makes it, it's not me. I'm not implicated, right? It's the bad apples. But that's one of the dangers, Alex, of, of um, looking at events singularly. Because at a time when black people are trying to be heard, um, sure, we, we have events like September 11th, and then there are these haters that, that attack people from the Middle East. And... Then we have, um, you know, this, this, as former President Trump called it, the China virus. You know, we have this pandemic and people turn their attentions once again to Asian Americans and, and start hating on Asian Americans and, and assaulting them. And then we see a group of people that are primarily white attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And that doesn't even factor in uh, what seems like a recent surge in mass shootings that don't seem necessarily racial in nature. And it, and it starts to become chaos. And it's hard to think of it as being systemic, even though it probably is. Yeah, no, that that's a... Uh those are all really good points. Um, so to sort of, you know, sort of finish up what I was saying that addresses what you're, the points, uh, the very good points you're, you're raising, 
Um, if we have language that speaks of haters, if we have language that speaks of the racist, what that does, and it has certainly a big grain of truth to that, right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss part of what those terms uh, point to. But what it does is it points us away from looking at racism, the structures of racism, structural racism. Because if the problem is just a handful of racists, it doesn't mean to go back to the people you said before uh, who are uh, watching Leave it to Beaver, it doesn't implicate them. It's language that directs away that says it's not me. Um, so, you know, if I'm referring to uh, the people at Charlottesville, for example, I would use the language of far-right extremists. I would divide them into different categories. I would try and understand the different ideologies uh, that motivate them and how this is linked into the history of our country, to the history of systemic uh, white supremacy in the country, how it's linked to structural racism. But if I just say, oh, they're a bunch of racists, it explains it away, it pushes it away, it individualizes, and it move, removes uh, the leave-it-to-beaver crowd, if you will. Uh, and in some sense, all of us, it distances us, and it doesn't implicate us in a history and a system in which we're all implicated, and and it makes it even even harder to you know accept as part of who we are if it seems like the quote haters are in fact not just simply racists but anarchists. Yeah, well, that's a another flip side. The anarchist, uh, you know, the far left anarchist versus the far right. Um, and just as a point of clarity, if you look at the number of taxes that have been carried out uh, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, what have you, there are barely any by uh, people on the far left. They're predominantly by people on the far right, and this was uh, acknowledged in a number of times by recent uh, U.S. counterterrorism officials uh, in this past year. Uh, and it was the case during the Trump administration, but they uh, sort of pushed aside and didn't publicize uh, this, uh, anyways, these, these facts. Um, so that's come out. I, you know, I should just say one other thing. Some people say, well, why are you only talking about uh, far-right extremism? I should just note that I actually come from a context of studying, uh, you know, far-right, but also far-left extremism. Uh, I did field work as an anthropologist in Cambodia. I've written books about the Khmer Rouge. Um, I testified at the International Tribunal uh, in Cambodia uh, that was trying the Khmer Rouge for crimes they perpetrated uh, in Cambodia for genocide from 1975 to 1979. Um, so the, it can happen here. It can be far left or it can be far right. I just sort of want to put that out there. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point because I, I had it sort of in the back of my head to, to make sure we made that point. In fact, I think that... that um, Political extremism isn't linear like we think. It's almost circular in, in a way where if you get far enough extreme, you're behaving like the ones on the right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a, a great point. Um, you know, one other part of the Alex, book... Alex, before you, before you start into that, because I, sure. I don't want to cut you off, um, <laughs> okay. but I have another break coming up, and, okay, and no, I no, would no. like to talk a little bit more if you can stick around for a few, min 
few more that, minutes. That'd be great. Yeah, okay, thanks. my guest is uh, Alexander Hinton. He is the book, uh, uh, the author of the book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. And we're going to talk about, uh, you know, what if when we... Uh, when we come back with Alex. If you're listening to us on 92.1 LPFM WFOV, our voices radio in Flint, we're going to let them squeeze in a little bit here and uh, do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in edible arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for edible arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. 
Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, with part three of my conversation with UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention, Alexander Hinton, who is also the author of a new book called It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. Alex, thanks for sticking around. Yeah, thank you. Um, Alex, we were, we were just... Um, something you said just before we went to break that made me... Uh, made me think, okay, so we need to talk about white power and the rising threat of genocide in the U.S., but um, oh, I know what it was when you said you uh, you testified in Cambodia uh, about the Khmer Rouge. Um, what do we do if it does, or when it does? Sorry, what do we do if... If genocide, when genocide happens in the U.S., and and we we've spent a little bit of time talking about the fact that not only can it happen, but it has happened. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a that's a great question, and I might reformulate it slightly to say what happens if we see the threat and risk of atrocity crimes, including genocide, escalating uh, in the U.S. Because hopefully we don't get to the Point where it actually breaks out um, and things happen. I mean, some people point to the family separations on the border uh, during the Trump administration as possible crime against humanity. Uh, there are other cases I could talk about. Well, um, yeah, Alex, let me just I- inject that for a lot of people, what we saw happen at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th um, had to be a red flag. Yeah, and so absolutely. So I was... Anyway, so if we go back, you know, the book moves forward from, actually it begins in 2016 with my testimony, uh, and uh, then candidate Trump giving, uh, on the campaign trail, telling the parable of the snake, which is an anti-immigrant screed, uh, which I then begin to talk about. There's this demonization that has echoes in the rhetoric that the Khmer Rouge used and that uh, then candidate Trump was using on the campaign trail, moves into Charlottesville. Um, then it takes up, uh, there's a chapter on Tree of Life uh, shootings. It touches on the Walmart uh, shootings. Uh, and it loops around, and the book was actually due and had to be submitted in the summer of uh, 20, uh, summer of last year, 2020, uh, as uh, then-President Trump was harping on uh, criminality, law and order. Um, and I mentioned that history, and then in, actually in the preface, I was able to add uh, something about the capital insurrection, noting that it really just fit 
precisely into what the book was discussing. Um, and I also wrote another op-ed uh, in Project Syndicate, which argued that the threat of atrocity crimes in the U.S. was extremely high, and this was in October 2020. Um, but sort of if we look back at the project, um, and a lot of the book is actually parts of it are set in the classroom, and some people who've read it say, you know, this is sort of like being in the classroom in a way, like trying to grapple and work through uh, what's happening uh, in real time as these events were taking place. Um, in April 2019, I gave a uh, the first talk related to this project, and uh, people were saying, you know, what, what's the risk? Um, and if we think of a kettle on a stove, um, you know, you can think of the risk being a low simmer moving to a high boil. Um, in the summer, in April 2019, I argued that atrocity crimes weren't so close, they weren't so far away. The analogy of Trump being Hitler was overstated, even though he does promote a form of ethno-nationalism, uh, populist ethno-nationalism, uh, a message of renewal, um, and a demonization of other groups that has echoes with that. Um, but I, you know, to me at that point in time, things were a rapid simmer in the U.S. Then we had the pandemic. So before I mentioned uh, sort of some of the risk factors, right? And the number one factor is upheaval. The pandemic struck. The economy collapsed. Mass protests were taking place. We began to have talk of having a coup. These are all things that take place and have taken place in other places where genocide and atrocity crimes have taken place. Um, so we went from a situation of, you know, sort of using this metaphor of a rapid simmer uh, in 2019 to the fall of, uh, in summer of 2020, uh, you know, things were a high boil. The risk was really high at that point. Um, you know, so this is a sort of different way to look at the capital insurrection and to turn it around, which absolutely was the culmination um, of these different risk factors coming together uh, that were pointing to something happening, something did happen. And as terrible as it was, another way to think about it is, well, what if we didn't have the capital insurrection? What would have happened? It wasn't as if things were suddenly going to be calm again. We were in a high-boil situation. And it was only at that moment, uh, in terms of incitement, that uh, President Trump, then President Trump, lost his ability to tweet, to incite, to communicate with his supporters and a number of other people who were not just outraged then, but continue to be outraged at the moment. So I would say we've gone from that high boil in the fall of 2020 uh, back to a rapid simmer at the current moment. Um, you know, and if you, you look, this is the one-year anniversary of Lafayette Square, uh, which also sort of shows a different trajectory of how uh, atrocity crimes can unfold under certain circumstances. Um, but we also had former General Flynn uh, make the comment uh, last night that it should happen here in relationship to the coup in Myanmar. Uh, and that was really striking. Uh, that, was, that was said yesterday. Uh, we had President uh, Biden saying that democracy is imperiled. We've had Liz Cheney recently say the same thing and also say that the risk of violence remains high. Um, we live in a moment of extreme polarization, uh, and it's still a very dangerous moment. 
uh, and uh, you know, over half of uh, Republicans interviewed don't think Biden's a legitimate president. Uh, you know, we all have reason to be concerned. And again, atrocity crimes are a spectrum, and mass violence as well that culminates in genocide. But we're in a very uh, high risk situation still today. Is there, and I know there's no simple answer to this, Alex, but is there a way to raise the bar on what our expectation for people's behavior should be? Um, well, I mean, accountability, right, is, uh, is what historically has been one of the bars. It's, we go back to the risk factors. Um, you know, we have buffers in place. Uh, including checks and balances, which are there to make sure that the situation doesn't intensify uh, into a moment where we can get the capital insurrection. And I will stress, something much worse could have happened um, again. But one of those is simple accountability. Uh, and this is where, on the grassroots level, um, and it's very hard in a time where you flip on uh, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, uh, and you have completely different realities um, in terms of what's being focused upon, the way it's being presented. Uh, and we have Twitter and Facebook with algorithms that lead us to sort of see the things that are similar to what we want to see. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation in all those ways. But in the end, uh, you know, they're... they're well, anyways, I, I won't go into some Al of the other technologies like the military. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that on the grassroots level, each of us has the ability to serve as a check by speaking out and holding uh, people in the government accountable. And, and I was going to kind of end on that note because uh, you talk about um, President Biden's uh, reaction to uh, the insurgency at the Capitol on January 6th by saying, but that's not who we are. And you you raise the question, is he right? And that's a, a question that your book uh, invites people to explore and talk about, and, and kudos to you for that. We just have a, a minute or two left, um, and I always give guests an opportunity to let n listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. It can happen here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. by Alexander Hinton. But Alex, uh, do you have a website with uh, maybe information about you and your work, past, present, and future? Yeah. Uh, thanks, yeah. So if uh, you know, the easiest way is to put uh, put in Alex Hinton and Rutgers University in a search, uh, and it will take you to my uh, website. The URL is kind of long to uh, to spell out, right, but right. it will take you right there. Um, I should note that the uh, the book, um, which is formally being released actually in one week, um, there's also going to be an instructor's guide that's drafted uh, that will be on the site as well. And the reason I mention that is it actually has further readings and resources listed in it. So it's a publicly available document. Um, and that's another way to begin to uh, for further exploration. And, of course, the references in the book uh, are, as always, uh, the footnotes uh, for anything people want to find out about. Uh, there's lots of, uh, anyways, lots of different 
trails to follow. Um, and I will continue to uh, speak out about this. Um, I, you know, on Twitter, I'm just I'm just moving into Twitter. I'm uh, <laughs> different generation, uh, but uh, you know, my Twitter is at Alex L Hinton. Yeah, there was there's I, a there's a void there, Alex. You might as well fill it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Twitterverse. Um, but it's uh, you know it's one one other place in terms of trying to increase awareness uh, to speak out again. But uh, generationally, I'm not uh, of generation uh, social media, but I'm trying to do the best I can uh, with that. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This is an important discussion. I feel like we've just uh, scratched the surface, but uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, and thanks so much again uh, for inviting me to, to talk with you today. Take care. More of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 